0: Every week on this show, we talk about the science impacting your world. The headline-making science news that warrants a step back and a conversation with someone who can help us figure out what's going on. But have you ever wondered what else we don't talk about? Well, so do we. Welcome back to the Weekly Sideshow, where we hope to cover just that and update you on the science news you didn't know you needed. I'm Sam Marchetti.
1: And I'm Tanisha Rajendran.
0: And today we're going to get up to date on everything from U.N. treaties on plastic pollution to asexually reproducing mice in another discussion on the sidelines.
1: Okay, so let's get right into it. So the first thing I have for you today, Sam, is this treaty that U.N. member countries are trying to fix up to fight plastic pollution. Now, okay. what do you think of plastic pollution in general? How bad do you think it is?
0: I mean, I don't think it's great. I think it's pretty <laughs> probably pretty bad. I keep hearing about this uh this uh, great Pacific garbage patch, isn't that uh that's mostly plastic in the oceans like the size of Texas or something, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and these plastic patches are basically everywhere. Like when I was reading this article, they attach like a few pictures to it. And there's one in Serbia. When you look at it, it's like, is this really a lake or is it just like a garbage disposal area? So it's getting really bad, even though I know like in Canada, like we don't even use plastic bags mainly for groceries anymore. We're doing little steps, but we need something bigger. So what happened recently in a a UN meeting was that the UN Environmental Assembly voted unanimously to form a resolution to end all plastic pollution. So to end plastic pollution, I don't know how effective that's going to be. So that's what they're going to be doing for the next couple of years, basically trying to figure out where to target it. So by 2024, we'll actually have a treaty that's, like, legally binding that all member countries have to follow. So what this treaty will actually encompass is, like, not just plastic waste, but they'll be targeting plastic pollution, its processing, distribution, and how it ends up in the wasteland in the first place. So it's, like, tracking The progress of it. And hopefully that'll one day become a cure for plastic pollution. I feel like that is such a big problem. And if you didn't know, it's like this 500 billion industry of global plastic production in general. And do you want to guess how much tons of plastics ends up in the ocean every single year? This is not collectively, this is just annually
0: uh something on the order of a billion pounds am i close
1: not even it's 11 million metric tons well oh, okay that's a lot yeah. more
0: yeah for yeah. reference for our listeners metric tons are a lot more than pounds so i was way <laughs> under
1: <laughs> yeah so yeah i'm excited for this new treaty to take place and well, that, it's
0: and- good that it sounds like it's um that it's covering the entire process. We just talked about in a recent episode um, with Sam Reynolds about, uh, oh, what's their name? Uh, you know, uh, gas companies. We talked about, um, you know, big oil, basically. Uh, ExxonMobil, that's the name. We talked about ExxonMobil making these big pledges to kind of uh, curb their pollution, right? But they only focused on the process of creating their product. Like they didn't make any pledges for what people do with their product or how their product is disposed of. It was just how they make it. So it's nice that this treaty is kind of focusing on not just how they make it, but also what's being done with it and how do we um, how do we dispose of it? How do we use it? That kind of thing.
1: Yeah. And obviously, like everyone is trying really hard to reduce like their plastic footprints, like in your daily lives. But there's only so much like individual people can do.
0: Yeah, I know. That's one of those things we always keep hearing like, oh, you got to like buy things that don't have plastic on them. But like, like what? Like (laughs) everything we buy has plastic. You go to like Tim Hortons and you get, you know, a wrap or even a coffee, right? There's plastic in the cup. There's a liner that's plastic. If if you think your cups from Tim Hortons or whatever are just paper, (laughs) you're fooling yourself. That wouldn't make any sense, right? The paper would absorb the coffee and it'll leak right through. There's plastic in those things. There's plastic everywhere. It's impossible to avoid it. Like...
1: There's plastics in our bodies at this point,
0: yeah, yeah, microplastics from eating <laughs> eating fish that have consumed plastic um but yeah, for the listener, it's not your fault, it's not our fault. we can't avoid it. Just, no one's giving us the option of you know effectively avoiding it um another thing we've had a we've had an episode on, I think we've talked about how you know climate change is really the the fault of big corporations, and there's not not quite as much we can do on the small scale except for lobby for them to change their ways
1: mm mm-hmm. So what do you have for us today, Sam?
0: So actually, on that note of um, of plastic pollution, um, we have a lot of other kinds of pollution that we're trying to deal with. Um, and one of the big ones is uh, carbon pollution, right? Uh, releasing greenhouse gases. When you think of carbon pollution, what's like the number one place you think it comes from?
1: Like meat industry like in the dairy industry.
0: Interesting. That's not what I thought you were going to say. But <laughs> 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 OK, so for me, it's cars. Whenever I think of like fossil fuel, I just think of like people driving like some big trucks. You know, that's mm-hmm. what I picture. Massive trucks, transportation industry, huge emitters. Um, and one thing that I read this week um, was that researchers at MIT have actually figured out a way to take um, take the process of creating fuel. So they're finding a petroleum um, and they've actually figured out a way to use that waste to create something useful, um, so it doesn't necessarily solve the carbon pollution problem, but it, it means per you know whatever unit of carbon produced, um, we're we're making a little bit more. We're getting a little bit more out of it. Um, so petroleum is usually used for things like you know transportation, heating, um, paving roads, um, you know generating electricity. So it's used in a lot of things, and now we can make something else. So take one guess what we're making.
1: Well, I know we like make rubber and plastic out of petroleum. Is that it?
0: Sort of, but better. Um, So they figured out. Have you heard of carbon fiber?
1: Yes. Is it something to do with like those Internet cables or am I just like
0: tripping? There are carbon fiber um, cables for sure. But carbon fiber is more often used in um, just making like super structurally sound uh, things. So for example, some cars will have carbon fiber outings, some like really high-end cars. Um, but right now, not a lot of them do. Um, more often you'll find carbon fiber right now in like tennis rackets. Um, some like computer uh computer equipment stuff will have it. Like they sell like carbon fiber mice and carbon fiber like you know game controllers and things because it's like next generation. That's all you know carbon fiber phone cases. But researchers have figured out how to make uh carbon fiber now from uh, petroleum kind of waste the stuff left over from the refining process and it's a lot cheaper to do than normal carbon fiber which means we don't have to limit it to tennis rackets and little computer gizmos we can theoretically make enough carbon fiber to cover a car to build the entire shell of a car out of carbon fiber at you know not like that crazy change in, in cost right it'd stay around the same um and actually, can you guess what the one characteristic of carbon fiber is that, like, makes it super desirable for cars in 2022?
1: Um. Well, it has to do something with petroleum because gas prices are crazy right now.
0: Well, you would think, but it's actually the weight of the vehicle.
1: Oh, it makes so it super light.
0: Yeah, cars have gotten super heavy in the last uh, 30 years. Um, it, it's like 15 percent increase in weights in, you know, within the same category of car over the last 30 years. Um, and so, you know, by increasing that weight, you know, you're naturally increasing the cost. So by using carbon fiber for the shell, you're decreasing the weight while not, you know, sacrificing any of your structural integrity. Um, and you're kind of saving some money in the process of building the car.
1: Oh, my God, that is so cool.
0: Right. Yeah. And the other thing is, so they've actually tested this uh, this carbon fiber um, and it, it holds up. So not just in terms of um, like stretching it. So in terms of tension, it holds up, but also in terms of compression. So you can hit it really hard and you can stretch it really hard. It <laughs> still can like, you know, it can still withstand quite a bit of force.
1: That is so cool. That sounds like a nice anime character.
0: <laughs> it does kind of sound like an anime character. But yeah, it's uh, it's a pretty exciting, pretty exciting development for the future of automobile development.
1: Amazing. Now, when you talk about the future, there is. Well, I obviously love all animals, but there's one animal that I love above all. And obviously that's the shark because they're (laughs) cool (laughs) and they're amazing. And you know how there's this rumor like when you're growing up, like sharks always keep swimming and they never sleep.
0: Sure. I don't think I ever personally heard that, but I mean, I believe it. You telling me that right (laughs) now, I believe it.
1: Everyone's like, oh, they never sleep. But in fact, sharks actually do sleep. So, what this group of researchers in New Zealand did was that they started studying the species of sharks called the draught board sharks. So, they're basically like this checkerboard like sharks. They're actually very cute. They're only a meter long. And what they did was that they wanted to understand whether or not sharks actually slept and how. The sleep was actually affecting the shark. Because if you didn't know, different animal species actually utilize sleep very differently from humans. For example, some species only sleep to conserve energy, sometimes it's to consolidate memory, and things like that. And there's also some species who sleep to remove toxins from the brain. So what uh, scientists found is that yeah, some species of sharks have to continuously swim, but in, uh, continuously swim, but in fact, they do sleep. They take little day naps along the way.
0: How do they do that? Do they have to like go to the bottom of the ocean, and, like lay down on the floor? or do they just like float without being conscious?
1: Well, it depends on the species. Like the nurse shark, for example, they can like lay down and like be fine, and then there's like species who must continuously swim
0: interesting so will they swim while they sleep
1: some species yeah that's and crazy There, and you sometimes um when these researchers went into the water to like look at the shark you can obviously see them like being a little drowsy and like it's like very cute but at the same time you're getting a lot of science out of it and that's what i would like to believe cool. sleepy sharks So what they do is that they obviously lower their metabolism. That's one good indicator of when an animal is sleeping and their responses to like electricity. Sharks are very sensitive to electricity. So one of the experiments to see their reactivity time to it, and that's how they determined it. So now the next step of the project is to identify the reason for their sleep schedule the way it is, because. I don't think, based on what I've read, that they necessarily have long, deep sleep like humans do. We have a lot of deep sleep. But they do have, like, rapid eye movements, and they do it for memory consolidation as well.
0: Interesting. I imagine you could kind of tell from just from the, you know, rapid eye movement alone. because they've done studies in humans that like the REM phase of sleep, I, I would think just from looking at that and seeing that in sharks, you'd be able to tell it has something to do with uh, with memory and with uh, maybe maybe sharks are dreaming. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's a it's definitely a cool field. Um, I'm sure we'll see some interesting developments in it. Um, in terms of other interesting species developments this week, have you ever heard of Parthenogenesis
1: parthenogenesis and this is bringing me back to first year biology but tell me what this (laughs) is so
0: parthenogenesis is the process of um basically having offspring um from one parent right so it's in yeah it's basically asexual reproduction um and in it does happen in some species but not in mammals uh generally in mammals we don't see parthenogenesis And the reason for this is something called uh, genomic imprinting. So you can kind of think about it like if you picture a strand of DNA, right? uh, There are sections of that DNA that get these little like carbons attached to them. They just get like carbon atoms attached here and there. And each one of those carbon atoms is called a a methyl group. Um, So from the way that uh, a strand of DNA is methylated from the pattern of carbon atoms on it, um, it, it kind of says, "Hi, I'm DNA from the sperm parent," or "Hi, I'm DNA from the egg parent." Right? Um, and based on these patterns, um, the genes are either inactive or they're active because of those those methyl groups. So what happens is, in mammals, um, sometimes you get genes that are only active if you've gotten them from your sperm parent, or you get genes that are only active when you've gotten them from your egg parent. Um, so basically, that makes it very difficult for uh, parthenogenesis to occur in mammals because. There are certain genes that you need um, that you can only get from one parent. You know, like you need both parents DNA to have a full set of like active genes to be like, you know, a a functional uh, organism.
1: (laughs) Yes, that's what I would imagine, because I don't ever heard of like two eggs making a baby or two sperms.
0: Right, exactly. It just it doesn't happen. Um, So what researchers did um, recently is. They actually took unfertilized mouse eggs. Um, so just just the egg. They didn't introduce any sperm. Um, and they use the same system that CRISPR Cas9 uses. Um, have you you've heard of CRISPR Cas9?
1: <laughs> Brings me back trauma from my lab days.
0: <laughs> so it's a gene editing mechanism, basically. Um, it, the simple way of explaining it is it's like a pair of scissors. You can go in and cut the DNA and you can take parts out. You can put parts in um, from you know other sources. But what researchers did was they used that Cas9 system. They used these kind of scissors um, to modify certain regions of this unfertilized mouse egg DNA um, to be either methylated or demethylated so that they would be activated. Um, so it solves the problem of not having a, you know, like a sperm-only activated gene by activating the egg copy of it, which is usually inactive.
1: That is so cool. So would this be like a literal clone or
0: yeah basically because you wouldn't have any hybridization um yeah you wouldn't have any hybridization in the organism it might not necessarily be a clone i suppose um just depending on which uh, alleles you had in that unfertilized egg um mm-hmm.
1: but you would need a full set of alleles for it to actually be an organism not just yeah half. so it would
0: duplicate on its own and then i'm not entirely sure the mechanism by which they made it do that but um, it's worth noting that you know in the study they started with 227 unfertilized eggs and basically at each stage of the process they kind of lost some um, mm-hmm. and at the end only one one mouse was born <laughs> but they did have uh, a, a a parthenogenic mouse
1: that is so cool and it's a mammal I, I wouldn't yeah. I mean that sounds so complex
0: yeah and you know what's even crazier that mouse that was born from a single unfertilized egg Mm-hmm. Had its own offspring.
1: Oh, so it's not Stera.
0: Interesting. No, it's not. It had to mate with another mouse. They didn't do like Parthenogenesis twice, (laughs) Um, but it had its own offspring. So through Parthenogenesis, um, they were able to, you know, have a mouse that not only survived, but was also fertile and could keep um, reproducing.
1: That is so cool. Now I want to know like what the offspring and the parents' genetic makeup was like and how similar or dissimilar this is, because it could also be a clone, but not really from the sounds of it.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of things that could happen in the process, and there are a lot of uh, specifics that we won't get into here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, but no sounds cool. I feel like there's some animals in nature or I have heard of some animals in nature who are capable of it.
0: Yeah, just not mammals usually.
1: Yeah, I wish I could remember what these animals were, but whatever. But Yes, that is so cool. And then uh, I don't think it'll be widespread, though, if this kind of technology was to like exist in the future, because I can't imagine it like being endorsed by a lot of people.
0: For use in humans, you mean?
1: Yeah, like uh, some freaky alternate universe. I
0: don't know. I could see that being a thing. I could see I could definitely see this being a thing, especially for um, for same sex couples. This could um Right. If you can extract the DNA, for example, from um, one egg cell and then kind of CRISPR it to activate certain sections of the gene and then, you know, uh, kind of fertilize another egg cell with this modified DNA from another egg cell, you could have an offspring in theory based on the same mechanism they use. You could have an offspring um, that is, you know, the offspring of a same sex couple.
1: Oh, that is so cool. And I feel like that might actually work. Well, if we have the technology and then all the ethics and stuff. Yeah, but I think coffee- it's a pretty
0: far way off, given that we went from 227 eggs to one surviving mouse.
1: Exactly. Not and a like, great
0: success rate right now.
1: <laughs> a little bit of a tangent talking about ethics, and it's not an entirely different story. But have you heard of the CRISPR twins from China? That was I have like- not
0: heard of the CRISPR twins from China.
1: Okay, this is something we need to talk about another day. But basically, there was the scientist in China who didn't, well, who didn't experiment without following ethics. And I think it was illegal. I haven't read the book in a very long time. And I heard it at like a scientific conference. But basically, he had a pair of twins, I think. Um, and one of the twins, he used CRISPR in, when it was an egg to remove the gene that was more susceptible to HIV. So he genetically modified a twin.
0: Wow. That's an actual cool.
1: human. Yeah. But hmm. no, after that, I think he's jailed now, honestly.
0: Oh, yeah. That, that kind of makes sense. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah, so that's a story for a different day. But uh, one story I have for you today is regarding the African outbreak of out of control polio.
0: Oh, OK. Jumping right from HIV to polio. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I know, because like we, I guess right now, since everyone is really focused on COVID and before COVID happened and during and right now, present as COVID is like slightly dying down. What we don't realize is that there's epidemics and outbreaks going around for all sorts of things all over on the globe. Like, do you want to take a guess of like one outgoing virus outbreak that's currently happening?
0: um malaria
1: yeah there's always like some country that has a malaria outbreak even though we have like medications and stuff that's why the cdc has this like huge outbreak list of everything that's going around the world and you have to like if you're gonna pra- travel somewhere make sure you take your vaccinations as well yeah. as like your medications
0: i don't know did you ever watch um how i met your mother
1: no, but I have watched clips of it. I could so there's a there's it.
0: one like little plot line where one of the main characters, Lily, her she has like an estranged father who keeps coming back into the picture just randomly, you know, throughout the show. And he makes board games. Like that's his profession. He makes board <laughs> games. So I just remember one board game he shows up with. He's just like, I brought diseases, and his game is just <laughs> called Diseases. That's what I'm thinking <laughs> about right now. Just oh it's a real God. life version of the board game Diseases from How I Met Your Mother. <laughs>
1: no oh have you ever played pandemic like the board game
0: no but i've heard it i have played um oh not pandemic but you know the phone game what was the phone game called you know <laughs> that the re- plague plague inc oh where you, you just like you're a virus <laughs> and you're trying to like mutate your virus to infect and kill the entire yeah that oh. game you know what's weird I thought as soon as COVID happened, I remember thinking to myself, that game's going under. There's no way that game like that game company's going under. They took off. Yeah. That game got developed so much more during COVID, which is insane. Why would you want to play that during an actual plague? Like
1: Well, the pandemic one was really fun, because like you were trying to stop outbreaks around the world.
0: Yeah, this is the opposite.
1: Yeah. Anyway, involved. why are we talking
0: about why are we talking about diseases? Why are we talking about um okay. polio? So
1: polio is there was this long-lasting effect when polio first came into the picture to fully eradicate polio and polio is pretty much eradicated in a lot of different countries except for very few for example in like war-stricken countries or with like a lot of internal conflicts like pakistan and afghanistan still have like polio because like even recently they were some polio workers that were gunned down in some of these countries oh, so wow. the efforts are always like being halted due to like political and like just geopolitical things in general and i'm not an expert in it by any means but in some countries like some countries in africa right now we're seeing a polio outbreak wild polio outbreak more specifically not because of any like setbacks like that, but because of an under immunization or unimmunization of children. So when I say under immunization or unimmunization is basically when you're not getting the exact doses of the vaccine you need, or like basically the vaccine for polio, how it works is that you have a live weakened form of the virus that's in the vaccine. And obviously, there's been years and years of research to create this vaccine. But what happens sometimes is that this weakened form can revert itself into wild polio, an active form. And that can cause uh, neurovirulence and then form of the virus and then paralyze the kids. Oh, so, yeah, that's what's ver- worrying because when that happens, um, the government in certain countries that, where this is happening don't fully acknowledge the extent of this outbreak and it goes unscattered. And that's when these kinds of polio uh, outbreaks actually happen. So, what the WHO is trying to do right now and some of the researchers is to Mass produce another type of vaccine. Now, this new vaccine is called OPV2. It's like a secondary version of the one that was like reverting back. And hopefully, this new vaccine is more efficient and genetically stable than the first one. But at the same time, like polio eradication has been going on for such a long time. It's very frustrating to look at it, especially when you're reading these kind of articles. But they're planning for the government to more, be more vigilant and like just be on top of it when it does reverts back. Because no one really thinks about vaccine-derived strains as like an emerging source of an outbreak, especially for polio.
0: Yeah, and I imagine you know vaccine development for something like polio, which is largely eradicated except in war-torn areas. I imagine you know development of a new vaccine could take a considerable amount of time, even with, you know, the COVID vaccine where everyone had COVID and everybody wanted to get this done. It took them like a year. Yeah. So I imagine with something like this, it could take, you know, like a very long time to get something developed
1: exactly because like like you said in most places it's already eradicated and like what i find with diseases there that are very endemic to certain regions of the world getting access to vaccinations or like medications in general can be such a hassle and it takes years and years and years of development because either of like funding or where it's located worst case like scenario it comes down to where it's located in the world
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, so hopefully we can eventually eradicate polio, even in like this war-driven or like places where you would think that polio would be eradicated. But like I said, there is currently... Now, there was an Ebola outbreak very recently in West Africa. I'm not sure if it's still ongoing, but like you said, there's a malaria outbreak going on. And obviously you have the circulating hiv strains that you don't really think about but are actually detrimental and like i can get into this whole conversation of like what is actually a deadly virus ebola or hiv something that kills you long term or something that kills you instantly yeah That like that's a story for a different day but like just think about it like different outbreaks that are constantly happening around you but you just never realize
0: yeah, constantly thinking about striving towards a world with no disease.
1: It's it's interesting.
0: So switching gears a little bit, um, let's talk about drugs. OK. <laughs> <laughs> um, OK, so I I did a little bit of Googling. Um, I didn't know this. The drug we're going to talk about today is also called donkey dust. Uh, I don't know why <laughs> it's called that, but can you take a guess which, which drug we're talking about? <laughs>
1: oh my god donkey dust i don't know why it sounds like pixie dust in my head um
0: it's also called wonk
1: (laughs) please please don't tell me it's like ground up donkey bones or something like that
0: no thank god but more commonly it's known as ketamine okay um so when you think of ketamine what's the first thing you think of
1: um psychoactive like bad very bad
0: Yeah, you kind of imagine it's a bad thing. Um, I I do believe it's used as a horse tranquilizer. So that's one thing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, But it's generally taken as a party drug. Um, It makes people feel kind of uh, detached and happy. Um, And on your body, especially, it makes you feel numb. uh, So you can't feel pain while you're on uh, ketamine. And usually it lasts. um, The effects will last for like, you know, half an hour, an hour in that neighborhood somewhere. but what researchers have found um, at UBC is actually that um, if you take basically micro doses of ketamine um, and you continually take it, uh, you can have like fairly long term anti suicidal and antidepressant effects. Oh,
1: OK. Interesting. Yeah. So it's,
0: it's kind of like the same idea as people who, you know, micro dose on marijuana for medical reasons. Right. Um, now they're starting to believe that uh, ketamine might also have some short-lived um but you know potentially beneficial uh effects where it comes to uh, mental health disorders
1: that is so cool but that at at the same time it's so scary to think about unless it's obviously it has to be controlled environment
0: yeah one of the things they're still trying to figure out is um what amount um and what type of other therapies they should be using to complement um any kind of uh, you know, microdosing or small doses of uh, ketamine for this kind of use.
1: Hmm. Because, like, yeah, I I can see if it's not being regulated as well, people like taking too much than what they're supposed to be taking.
0: Yeah, you can. You know, as with any drug, you can overdose on it, right? Um. So it's definitely something that needs to be strongly regulated and definitely strongly researched first before we start to we start actually using this. Um, But it is interesting that there have been, you know, uh, like this study was uh, actually an analysis of 150 other studies um, on the effects of uh, sub anesthetic ketamine doses is what they call it It just means uh, little enough ketamine that you don't feel numb that you don't you miss out on that effect of not being able to feel pain. Um, So you're not getting a very high dose at all. But if you repeat it, um, you can have, you know. Pretty good uh, antidepressant, anti suicidal effects, which could be um, very helpful in treating mental health disorders.
1: Yeah. Well, as long as you're not using the dose to tranquilize a horse, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, for some reason, it didn't cross my mind that I was a horse tranquilizer.
0: Well, I forget, I, like, I honestly don't remember why that's a thing that people talk about, but I do know that that has come up before, for sure. <laughs> like, I know I've heard this before. Um, it's just like, I think it's from a meme or something. Like, it's it's some joke from somewhere that can is like horse tranquilizer. Um, but it actually um, is.
1: So what stage of this research is in re- right now?
0: So it's very preliminary research. Um, I just add the format of this study was basically these researchers looking at 150 other studies Um, so those studies have been done over the last you know a number of decades Um, so it's at this point we're not really at a point where we're about to start giving you know ketamine to people to help treat mental illness but we are at the point where we know well maybe we could you know
1: yeah theoretically we could
0: we should we're at the point where we're starting to think well we should start testing this you know Exactly. Um, Yeah, yeah.
1: No, that is so cool to listen about. Any form of like new treatment or medications coming out for from something that's caused a lot of damage to society could could be bright.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks again for joining me today, Tanish. And thank you again for tuning in and remember to subscribe for more conversations and some insightful answers to your questions about the science impacting your world. If you want to learn more about ketamine, sleeping sharks, or any of the other topics we've talked about on this show, visit us on Instagram or TikTok at SciForEveryone and on our website at scienceforeveryone.ca. On the Sidelines is a podcast by Science for Everyone. It's produced by Sam Marchetti, June Kim, and Taneshwari Rajendran. On the Sidelines is sponsored by the University of Toronto's Student Engagement Grant.